Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. What, what this morning is the, is the talk inside the White House after that, uh, that moment in the White House press briefing yesterday, a contentious moment between Sarah Sanders and Jim Acosta of CNN. He pressed her to say that the, uh, the press is not the enemy of the people. He ended up walking out of the briefing. Uh, you know, fake news is dangerous. And we know for a fact that many of the so-called news uh, reporters, okay, that go out there have a complete disdain for President Trump. It's no wonder that we've seen that 90% of the media coverage for President Trump has been negative. Uh, what American people want to see is fair, objective coverage. And quite frankly, you've had reporters who cried the day that President Trump won. And they obviously show their bias. And so I think that's incredibly troubling. And for that being said, the president has to defend himself. The president and, and uh, those of us in the administration who have been uh, blamed and, and have been called names by journalists. And, you know, we, we really want to be able to be able to talk about the president's uh, winning message. And it's very hard when you have reporters who prefer to see themselves on camera all the time and many of the liberal media who have complete disdain for this, for this president and refuse to acknowledge any of the positive work that he's doing. Well, I, th- I don't think you should be defensive about this. Uh, you need to go on offense. And I know that's a big part of why you came on today. Um, and we're going to take this up with our media panel moment because it, it was quite a thing yesterday just watching that and seeing Sarah Sanders' reaction. I mean, she really felt it. Wow. He's got that right. Sarah Sanders was accosted by Jim Acosta and she handled it well, but the emotions are, are peaking. They're running high. And the reason that's happening is because we have deplorable behavior coming out of our media and their justifications and allowances of the personal attacks against Sarah Sanders and other women in the White House and, and really women in government, period, are double standards that no one's buying anymore. And so the idea that Jim Acosta gets to be outraged about what he considers to be an insult from the president of the United States, uh, it's just not hunting with the rest of us. That dog won't hunt. Welcome to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We are having a pretty full show again today. Yesterday was fantastic with Eric Trump joining the program. and We had a really good discussion with him about trade and uh, the presidency and his father's work on behalf of the country. We also spoke with Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post. She was amazing. First time guest. We hope to have her back in the future to discuss economics with us again. And then, of course, good friend of mine, Kathleen McKinley, conservative commentator out of Texas, talking about the double standards with uh, Twitter and how they seem to have a, just a zero tolerance policy for conservatives and a tolerate everything policy for everyone else. So that brings us to today. We have Travis Smith, associate professor of political science at Concordia University. He's the author of a book called Superhero Ethics, and he's going to join the program in hour one. And then in hour two, we will have Drew Johnson, senior fellow at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, a- an organization that I absolutely I love their work. I love their work because they're all about protecting taxpayers. And I'm a taxpayer, and I think it's fantastic that an organization such as that would do the kind of work that they do to advocate on behalf of people who are working hard and deserve to keep more of their money. So Drew will be joining us in hour two to discuss energy industry paying it forward in Missouri, which is important because that's a connection of your tax dollars, energy, and what's happening locally at the state here in Missouri. And that will be applicable for a lot of our listening audience because – 
Um, sometimes Missouri is in the lead. Sometimes in the Midwest, we're the last ones to jump on a bandwagon. And other times we're innovators and we're out front. So we'll talk to Drew about that. Right now, I want to get into just a bit of, uh, it's kind of good news, bad news. Good news is I'm telling you about it so we can do something about it. Bad news is it's a continuation of a story that we've been covering here on the show uh, and that I've been encouraging people to make a change. And that's the thing about birth rates. When people decide to have fewer children, the ramifications of that continue to reverberate for decades. And so turning a birth rate around doesn't start the year you hope to turn it around. It starts years before that. We have to start this conversation now in our homes, at our kitchen tables. We have to reprioritize children. We have to reprioritize family. Uh, it's the bedrock. It's the cornerstone of what God has us here to do. And people make fun of the Bible verse that says, be fruitful and multiply, you know, and usually it's used as a derogatory <laughs> indictment on someone who's not parented someone well and that child is out doing something awful and they're like, oh, he looks like they were a little too fruitful or people who can't seem to manage their families well. But the, the bulk of American families are not poorly managed. Uh, it's just not true. Now, we, we tend to do this with news. It's confirmation bias and it's a little bit of, you know, the shiniest object wins. We see stories about people struggling with their family or their kids or people committing crimes and we forget proportionally what that really is in a nation of 320 million people or so, you know, we're, we're going to have people who commit crimes and do things wrong, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't have children. And we're going to see people who are stricken with poverty. You don't have to be wealthy to have a family. And the reason I'm making those very basic statements is because our culture currently kind of just flows over us and washes us in a sense of despair about being able to attain the American dream, which is largely painted around economic success, which, hey, rabid capitalist over here, I'm all about being successful. But I think we buy into this idea that if you're not having these $500 birthday parties for your child from the time they're, you know, one year old, two years old, three years old, up until the time they graduate from high school and putting them in an expensive private school and living in a 3000 square foot house on an acre in an exclusive subdivision with a gate at the front. And if you're not driving two Lexuses with a boat parked somewhere in, you know, on a dock somewhere and you don't have a second house that you're not winning at life and that your family can't possibly be happy. There's nothing further from the truth. It's not about the material possessions that you have. It's about the joy you have in your life and your ability to be able to enjoy what you have and plan for and hopefully attain more based on what you're willing to work and do. And there is something to be said. And I, I, we've covered it here on the program, but perhaps next week we should do a whole uh, couple of segments on the surveys and statistical studies that have been done that show that people aren't a ton happier once you make about 75000 a year, and we'd have to adjust that up a couple, you know, uh, some percentage for to include cost of living. But once you're earning about 75000 a year, you're not substantially happier when you're earning 90000 The next jump in material happiness that people report in these surveys is at about one hundred and twenty-five, And then after that, people who make 200000 or 300000 or 400000 a year are not substantially more happy than people who make that 125. So it's not the earnings, it's what you do with the money. It's not how much you earn, it's how much you keep 
and of what you keep, what you do with it, how the money passes through your household and what you do. And so what am, what am I leading up to with all that? Well, it's disturbing. The CDC is reporting that the fertility rate in America is down yet again. Americans are having fewer kids now than in the past 42 years, which you know how I love to connect everything up together. We would need to import so many people from other countries if Americans were having kids. So the U.S. fertility rate hit a 42-year low in the first quarter of 2018, and this is new data released Wednesday by the Centers for Disease Control. New numbers, which they actually maintain these numbers and add to them from the National Vital Statistics System, NVSS, reveal that the total fertility rate, TFR, has fallen steadily since the first quarter of 2016. Now, the total fertility rate measures the number of children likely to be born per woman of childbearing age over her life's course. The rate for the year ending in quarter one, 2018, was 1.75 per woman, down from the end of 2017 rate of 1.76. Demographic Intelligence, a firm which forecasts demographic trends, projected, projected that TFR will continue to fall through 2018, hitting 1.74 by the end of the year. They have this nifty little chart. It's, it's actually, it's pretty cool. Um, and you guys know, there's almost nothing more exciting besides interior design and other people's babies than a really nicely done chart. And this one is obviously CDC NBSS. It has the replacement rate, which is 2.1. And we are well below that. So the replacement rate, to give you a definition on that, is the number of children each woman needs to have in order to replace herself and her husband in the population. It's usually pegged at 2.1, which accounts for women who die before bearing children at all. As CDC data show, the United States has been below replacement fertility for decades, meaning the size of each subsequent generation has grown smaller. A sustained below replacement TFR eventually means that a population will stop growing altogether as has happened in countries such as Japan, Lithuania, and Latvia. Now, y'all know I have great respect for the Japanese and their culture, but they just don't have enough babies. And we need Japanese people on the face of this planet. We need them. We need their expertise. We need their culture. We need them to be here. They need to have more kids. But it's not as simple as saying, yeah, just go ahead and have some more kids. The reasons that different societies tend to have fewer children are very complex but we don't have any of those factors here in the United States. We're wealthy. We also have plenty of space for people to actually move into homes, available space to build new homes. We have enough housing. We have enough social services. We have enough of everything that's required for people to feel comfortable having a child. But we're not having that happen. People are getting married later. Millennials especially are getting married later. The longer you delay marriage, the more difficult it is to get pregnant. The 20s are the prime childbearing years for women. Men can make babies until they're, you know, 80, 90 years old, but women need to start producing their family in the 20s. When you wait until the 30s, you've cut that window in half and you can have a child at 38. You can have a child at 40 or 45, but the likelihood of you doing so is greatly diminished. And so in this report, um, it's actually discusses the number of factors that explain the fertility decline. So let's see if they agree with me. American women are opting to delay having children to older and older ages. Ding! This trend doubtless has a variety of underlying causes. Women's entry into the workforce, declining rates of marriage, the prevalence of effective birth control, substantial changes in how our culture views child rearing's role in a complete life. 
Younger and less educated women are hesitant to have children, said Sam Sturgeon, president of Demographic Intelligence. They are more determined than an early generation of women to have all of their ducks in a row in terms of their education, income, and even relationships before having kids. So they're taking longer to have the kids and they're having fewer of them. Decomposing the TFR trends by age group actually confirms the trend. The number of women having children in their 30s has risen steadily since the mid-70s. 2016 was the first year in which more children were born to women aged 30 to 34 than women aged 20 to 20, not, 25 to 29. 25 to 29 had previously been the most common age group for childbirth for decades, which is as it should be. Notably, the number of teenage girls aged 15 to 19 has also fallen steadily for birth rate. The rate for girls aged 10 to 14 has been persistently below one child per 1,000 women since 1999, and that's actually really good. We don't want 10 to 14-year-old girls having children. So this is, that's good news buried in this report. Now, later childbearing almost certainly has some good consequences. It's tied to the historic low abortion rates that the United States currently enjoys. At the same time, socioeconomic trends driving later and less motherhood raise a number of concerns for policymakers and the public. Slowing population growth can mean lessening human capital, which can in turn drive economic stagnation. So while people are talking about how they want the United States to be you know, to continue our hegemony on into subsequent generations, into the future, that we want to be leaders on the international stage, that we want to continue to have dominance. Uh, You know, if you look at the size of the United States compared to some of the other more populous countries, the amount of power and wealth that we have in this country is astronomical. It's outsized. It's abnormal. It's fantastic, but it can't persist if we don't create more people. As we bring in more people who aren't Americans, some of whom aren't interested in assimilating into American culture and continue to produce fewer Americans ourselves, I mean, what do you think that looks like? It doesn't look good. And I don't mean it doesn't look good like, you know, in the Kim Kardashian world of everything being perfect and if it's not, just inject some plastic into it. I'm talking about not looking good for our economic well-being and for the well-being of our nation. God calls us to be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't say wait until you're economically stable to do so. He just says get married. We can do this. When we get back, we're going to have audio from Molly Hemingway talking about how the president didn't create the media distrust that currently exists. Stay right there. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, I'm reading through the Old Testament now, and I'm coming to places that are named that I see on our Israel tour every March. It's really fascinating to think that Jericho existed way back in the Old Testament thousands of years ago, and I can visit there today. The same can be said for Jerusalem. The Bible literally comes to life when you visit Israel, the Holy Land. Now, we're going in March. My wife, Allison, and I, we lead these tours every March. So if you would like to go with us, you need to go to the website and check it out. It's twholyland.com, twholyland.com. If you want a brochure sent to your mailbox, just call us at 800-FAMILIES, option 5. That's 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option 5, and we'll send you a brochure. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with The Legacy Moment. Many years ago, I heard an old preacher say, what we need are Christians who can pray through. I must admit, when I first heard that, I thought, what in the world does he mean by that? It took me years to figure it out, but I think he wasn't talking about emotional prayers. He was referring to prayers that are backed up by a godly, obedient life. The prayers of obedient followers touch the very heart of God. He wants what we say to be an extension of how we live. Listen to these words in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 27. Then the Levitical priest arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Now you have to understand the context here. This comes on the heels of their obeying God. They repented of their sin. They were worshiping God. They had reinstituted the Passover. This was an act of obedience. And so the bookend is that when they prayed on behalf of the people, their prayers ascended to heaven, to the very place of God, and God heard them. God listened to them. This begs several important questions. Number one, are your prayers being answered? I know the answers are yes, no, or wait, but are they being answered? Number two, is there sin in your life? Are you praying with a clean heart? Then number three, are you doing what God has called you to do? Are you following through? Are you being obedient? Here's what I want you to remember today. Prayer is our lifeline to God. Let's make sure the line is clear. We want to be known as those who can pray through. You've been listening to Legacy Moment with Crawford Loritz, pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, and heard on the weekly program Living a Legacy. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Yeah, Donald Trump did not create distrust of the media. Distrust of the media helped create Donald Trump. And the media really need to get a handle on why so many Americans don't just dislike them, but loathe them. If the only way you can sort of defend media performances, or if you get really upset about Donald Trump criticizing the media, is if you think that the media are doing a good job. And the fact is, very few Americans actually think the media are doing a good job. A recent poll showed that 72% of Americans think that the media deliberately report fake, false, or misleading news. And I think the misleading thing is really significant there. It's not that people are just making up facts out of whole cloth, but the bias and the self-aggrandizement and the idiocy that people see in the media is frustrating them, and the media really need to take a hard look inside. Jim Acosta telling a woman that she needs to say certain words or else he's not going to stop yelling at her is not going to improve the relationship between the media and the American people. That was Molly Hemingway, and uh, she's, she's right. Um, first of all, just imagine, just, just for a second, let's, let's get hypothetical here, even though I hate hypotheticals. Uh, let's say, let's paint a picture of a liberal woman who is in a position of authority being told by some conservative man that she needs to rebuke her boss. She needs to disagree with what her boss said. She needs to say what he's telling her to say, to agree with him, or he's not going to stop. I'm not going to let up on you until you say what I want you to say. Can you even picture it? Well, can you picture that guy keeping his job? That's the question. Can you picture that guy remaining employed with whoever? No. 
Because opinions are not to be had by people who don't hold the right political ideology. And by right, I mean approved liberal orthodoxy, not just right as in Stacey on the right or, wow, that sounds correct. And that's what we're seeing here. And the further and further we go, the just, we just keep on going and going and going and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And in response to it, instead of having some introspection, instead of the media saying, you know what, we don't like this guy, but we got to cover him fairly because this is our legacy too. Historians will look back on this time and they'll say, we, this X, Y, and Z about this president, but what they're going to say about us as media people is that they see a lot of unprofessionalism and that doesn't make us look good. That's not going to be what I want taught about my time as a journalist in the public eye. But they haven't even thought about that. Not only have they not thought about it, they don't care. Now, part of it is because they're paid to behave this way. And part of it is because, you know, like it or not, um, it's how they feel. They're governed by their feelings, and that makes them behave in this way. So you've got Kellyanne Conway. Uh, she was on one of the shows this morning talking about journalists with seven-figure contracts. Let's listen to number four. People know what they, what they see, and what they see are their bonuses, their raises, the deregulation, the, the historic tax cuts. They have confidence in this economy, and they're spending more of their money. I was at that rally tonight with the president. I, was, I, I participated in the roundtable with him ahead of time also. People are absolutely buoyant. They know that, beginning with Hillary Clinton, they were referred to as irredeemable and deplorable and looked down upon. Uh, they know that uh, Barack Obama, when he was running for president, said these people who cling to their God and their guns and their, he, he's had other things no, to no. say, just always. always always dismissing them. And, and this is why it's a very important point. I'm not sure they care anymore. I speak to these people all the time. You know what they care about? They care that they have a president right. who respects and takes action daily for the military, for the veterans, and for them. Um, and look, let's let's not... Let's not mistake what's going on here, too. A lot of these journalists have very expensive seven-figure contracts, go on late-night TV where they can yuck it up with someone similarly situated who could just laugh all day long, particularly at the, about the women in the Trump administration. Then they go and give speeches. I mean, they speak for free every single day, and half the country doesn't, or most of the country doesn't listen to them. So uh, she's right. She's talking about the frequency with which these same individuals like Jim Acosta appear on CNN. And I believe we discussed here on the program that, that there's a kind of a dominance that the news organizations achieve in the White House briefing room. And how they do it is, so you have, let's say you have Jim Acosta. He's a White House correspondent. He's also a contributor on CNN. He's, he works for CNN. And so he provides television coverage from his time at the White House. So he has to make news in the briefing room. He can't just be in there and come out and report nothing. He has to, have, has to report something. And CNN's not going to permit him to report good news coming out of there, so he has to kind of create negative news. Now, if he's not permitted to speak, it's okay, because CNN has like uh, maybe a third of the chairs in the room. Because if you're there in the White House briefing room and you work for a tiny little news organization or something small, something that's not as well known, 
and you make news by asking a derogatory question or getting something in or breaking some news, as soon as you do that, you get an offer for a contract from CNN. Now they've got you under contract as a contributor to their network. They're paying you whatever per year. And so not only are you going to come on and comment about news of the day, they also have you basically, it's another chair for CNN in the briefing room. So they have it fixed between CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, all of the news organizations that already have space in the room. They purchase more space in the room by hiring individuals because who's going to turn down a contributor contract if you're, if you're not a conservative and you know you're not going on to get roasted every night, then you're going to say yes because it's great expansion for your brand. It's fantastic money that you get paid. If you're, if you're already going on television, now you're going on TV, on CNN, and you're being paid to do so. And you have the prestige of saying, not only am I writing for this organization, like the Washington Post, Washington Times, whatever, but now I'm also a CNN contributor. I mean, the weightiness of that and the prestige of being a CNN contributor, you know, it, it varies depending on who you're talking to because most conservatives no longer consider it to be a viable news organization or someplace that you would want to be a contributor to. But it's definitely a, a feather in your cap. So what my hope is for all of this is if, if you know how it works, right, if you see the synergy at work that Almost everyone in that briefing room, the de- their demeanor towards Sarah Huckabee Sanders is of open, unbridled hate. They loathe her. They tolerate her. She has to go into a space and, and think of the dynamic that we're talking about here. Because it's one thing to sit and, you know, we're having this conversation now, you and me, about this, this subject. But it's a totally another thing to be in that space. To, if you've ever had to walk into a room where a lot of people are gathered and you already know going in that they don't like you, that they don't want you there, that they're out to get something out of you in that space that they can use to mock you, vilify you, tear you down, call for your firing or resignation. And every day you have to go into that space. And it's true. She's in there for at max two or three hours a day. Most days it's an hour, hour and a half. She has to prepare for it, though, and then she has to do television afterwards as well because she's the spokesperson for the president. She's the press secretary. But just imagine going into a space where you know most of the people in the room openly hate you. They've spent time at a national event that was televised mocking your appearance and laughing at someone else making fun of you. You see them every day, and no matter what you do, whether it's joking about apple pie whether it's talking about, you know, the, the weather, the season, anything you try to do to lessen the tension in the room, they rebuff you because they like the tension. They're marinated in it. It's their natural place of being. They love it there. They want the tension to be there. They like to see you uncomfortable. They're waiting for you to break. And you have to go in that room every day. And you get in there. And then the head clown in charge, which is Jim Acosta, regularly lobs over the most ridiculous insults. His questions are always rude. He always interrupts. And when you don't call on him, he throws a petulant hissy fit. And when you do, he can't even ask one question. Just just ask the question and then let you answer so you can then maybe take a follow-on from him. He has to make it so that you're interrupted and you're even more flustered because his intention is to get you to mess up, slip up, make a mistake, And most of his questions have zero to do with policy, laws that have been signed into action, foreign policy news. 
All he asks about is, well, the president said the, the, the enemy of the people. Well, the president insulted me. Well, I didn't get to ask two questions yesterday. This, it's just a constant barrage of personality conflict. It's like the real news journalists of the White House, Washington, D.C., And that is supposed to spur her on to making a passionate defense of the media. At what point do we acknowledge that this woman, why would she say anything nice about the media in that room when that's her everyday existence? Every other, what, three, four weeks, like every other month, we see a bunch of news outlets calling for her to be fired. Basically, it's just, I guess it's just whatever temperature it is. If it's the right temperature and it's the right Tuesday or Thursday, then a whole bunch of media outlets at the same time will come out and say, Sarah Huckabee Sanders needs to be fired. She's, she lied about this. She lied about that. They never give her the benefit of the doubt. If she makes a mistake, they capitalize on it and it's a lie. It's, it's premeditated. It's like she's killing puppies in the evening time instead of being with her family. And they've also announced that it's open season on her she has Secret Service protection now because she can't leave and go out in public because Maxine Waters has said she needs to be run out of town. She should have no safe space anywhere in this country. Media journalists, none of them denounce that. And what I mean by denouncing it is a 750 to 800 word op-ed about the idiocy of a sitting congressperson calling for someone to be publicly shamed and ridiculed when they haven't been convicted of a crime, just basically calling for a witch hunt. Where was Jim Acosta then? If he wants Sarah Huckabee Sanders to say that he's not the enemy of the people, that the media are not the enemy of the people, and, and mind you, I've not said that. I've, I have actually said that I think while it has been a fantastic campaign thing for the president, he's been able to utilize it to the best of his ability. He's been able to make news out of the detractors that he has in the media. He's been able to weaponize them against themselves. He's effectively shown the American people that we no longer have an objective fourth estate, that the fourth estate in this country is a media apparatus wholly owned subsidiary of the Democrats. So when you find a reporter that's fair and reasonable and they're out there, it's a surprise. You're, you're pleasantly surprised by it. That is what comes out of the kind of coverage that they provided to this president and to regular, regular Americans. Uh, I think if you gathered a bunch of them together, they'd have, you could probably get a mouthful of teeth. That's the most recent insult to people who were jeering at the media at a rally that was held by President Trump by, you guessed it, a blue check marked media person. So if, if this is where we are, if this is what's going on in the country, why should... Sarah Huckabee Sanders defend the media to Jim Acosta because he wants her to, because he's going to make her do it, because he threw a hissy fit and he jumped up and walked out of the room. I, I almost feel like when we saw her jump up and walk out of the room, that that was, she won. She won that one. And the reason is because he's unpleasant and he's not a good addition to the briefing room. So why shouldn't he get up and walk out? What? I'm not even sure why they allow him to keep coming in. Not because I want to see the media shut down or I don't think CNN is real news. None of that stuff. I'm just saying the guy's rude all the time. He doesn't have any decorum. That's why I wonder why he's allowed to continue. 
So I, I had to cover that today. I had to talk about that today because a lot of people who are currently castigating the president for saying that the media is, is fake news or, you know, they're, they're the enemy of the people, yada, yada, yada. They haven't had anything to say about the attacks on Barron Trump, Melania Trump. They haven't had anything to say about the attacks on Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her family. They just haven't had anything to say. And so if you want Sarah Huckabee Sanders to defend the media, then you would have to be the ones out there providing the same kind of defense to her. And the reason that you need to do that is because that's the way humanity works. Humans don't usually go out of their way to defend humans who are attacking them. That, that doesn't even, like, for people who believe in evolution and survival of the fittest, it seems like they would understand that in order for Sarah Huckabee Sanders to want to defend Jim Acosta, she would have to see him as an ally. Or at very least, as someone who is objective and dedicated to reporting the truth, no matter where that truth might lie, no matter what direction that truth might take him in, then she would have an impetus to defend him. We don't see that. And we're not going to see it. So we've also got a bunch of different news items for Friday. And today's Friday. It's our Friday news roundup. Happy Friday to you. Um, we have so much cool stuff planned for next week for launching the show on American Family Radio. We're super excited about that. And um, so I make sure and be tuned in. If you're tuned in on YouTube or Facebook or something like that, you're good to go. Nothing new to be done. We'll be welcoming in the new listeners from the stations on American Family Radio on Monday, and it'll be a fantastic time. But it's going to, it all happens on Monday. We are so excited about it. So I want to get a little bit of a flashback. Do you guys remember back in 2008? It seems like a lifetime ago. Back in 2008, we had frenzied, angry mobs turning on reporters in a dangerous physical altercation. The reporters were from Fox News. Jim Acosta didn't have anything to say back then. None of the media who currently think CNN's Acosta is right had anything to say about these angry mobs attacking Fox News reporters. And we're wondering why we don't have people at the White House defending the media right now. I don't know why. All right, when we get back, we will have Travis Smith, Associate Professor of Political Science at Concordia University. Stay there. Physical activity is the new trend. It's not a bad thing unless it has brought a sense of vanity in your life. Two years ago, I was not happy with the number on the scale nor how I looked. I've never been a huge person, but I was, as the old folks would say, healthy. <laughs> I joined a gym, gained a personal trainer, even changed some of my eating habits. The Lord checked me one day and in my spirit said, why are you disgusted with yourself? Be healthy, take care of the temple I've loaned you, but do it because you want to honor this body, which is your responsibility while on this earth. I said, you better let me know, Abba. Psalms 139 verse 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
15 pounds down, I know that even if I was to never look like Serena Williams with those nice framed worked out arms, I am wonderfully made in his image. And so are you. With the heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Victory McIntosh. Connect with us more at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. I'm not so certain we have as much time as many of us think. It's high time for the body of Christ to return with a fire lit up under us to proclaim the truth of God's word. To proclaim the truth of sin and repentance and not coming from a high lofty position but telling the truth as such were some of us. We have to do that. We have to. But what happens is, and I, I call this first world problem, uh, we have this epidemic of churchianity in America to where we are far more accepting and far more willing to embrace the trappings of church life even if they're void of the presence and power and fire of Christ. And I would say to you, just as the Bible says, that we can have a form of godliness while simultaneously, at the exact same time, deny the very power of the gospel. Of the gospel. Of the gospel. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekday afternoons at 5 Central on Urban Family Talk. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. What does breakdancing have to do with President Trump's threat to force a government shutdown if he doesn't get money for his border wall? Everything. It's always risky to talk about a government shutdown, especially right before the midterm elections. Florida Agriculture Commissioner Adam Putnam used to be the third highest ranking Republican in the House. And in September 2008, Putnam delivered perhaps the best remark about shutdown gambits for political advantage. In 2008, Republican House and Senate candidates were losing badly at the polls. Senator John McCain trailed Barack Obama. Putnam's views on a shutdown tactic before an election, quote, that would be like trying to breakdance around nitroglycerin, close quote. President Trump says he doesn't care about the political consequences of a shutdown, but Republicans in Congress certainly do. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Happy Friday to you. Lots of news and information coming at you right here live from the little SOTR studios in St. Louis via our networks at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We're super excited to be with you and to uh, be able to uh, have our next guest on the program. We have with us right now Travis Smith, Associate Professor of Political Science at Concordia University. He's also the author of a book called Superhero Ethics. Travis, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you very much for having me on Urban Family Talk Radio today, Stacey. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. I'm super excited about your book, Superheroes Save American Freedom. Tell us about the mm-hmm. book. Why'd you write it? I'm, I'm sorry? Tell us about the book. Why'd you write the book? Okay, so Superhero Ethics is the title of my book. Um, and in that book, I take a look at 10 different, very popular uh, superheroes, well known from the recent movies. And ask questions like, uh, are they good role models? Are these the kind of people that we would admire? If you imagine uh, what people in the real world who are similar to them, uh, what we would be like if we tried to model ourselves after their behavior. 
would we be happier people? Would we be better members of our communities? And um, and part of that question is, are, are these kinds of heroes suitable uh, for society based on the premises of equality and, and freedom? Wow. So I have to say to you, one of the things that's an obsession for almost everyone that we know, like family anecdotal talk here, is yep. the superhero movies, the uh, Marvel Universe and everything that's going on with these. It's a succession of films and they all come from the comic book hero series that, you know, I wasn't a huge comic book person beyond um, the Archie comics and Garfield and stuff like that and whatever was in the newspaper growing up. But I did right. have friends, especially the guys who were much more interested in the superhero um, not just one or two, but like literally following the stories every time a new one, one would come out, they would get it, they'd read it, they'd add to it. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those addictive hobbies. Once you get hooked, uh, there's tens of thousands more to read. Uh, in superhero ethics, though, I made a point of picking characters that were not so obscure. I didn't want to write a book that was only for hardcore comic book reading fans. But as long as you're the kind of person who's familiar with these characters, you enjoy going to them or taking your children or your grandchildren to them so you've got some familiarity, and you're interested in ethical questions about uh, what kind of character should we have in order to live well, uh, if you've got those interests, then I've written a book that's uh, tried to keep you in mind. Hmm. So let's talk about the ethics. Um, it, in, in your piece over at the Daily Caller, you talk about yeah. how we discourage or downplay everyday bravery, moderation, restraint, resilience, generosity, gratitude, decency, sociability, sacrifice, and the exercise of good judgment, all of the efforts that generate and constitute responsibility towards oneself and one's community. That's a mouthful. I totally agree with it, but let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I packed a lot in there. Right. No, today it seems that uh, people pat themselves on the back and regard themselves as righteous and good people so long as they hold the correct opinions and have the right feelings and sentiments and know when to express outrage and indignation as loudly as possible and retweet the correct hashtags. And as long as you do those things, then you can regard yourself as, as virtuous. And what I look at in the book are drawing upon classical traditions and biblical traditions, looking at, no, what kinds of qualities of character and qualities of mind we need to cultivate in ourselves and in our neighbors and in our children in order that we might actually try to, try to be the best people we can be. So is that what people really want? Because I've noticed a change from, let, let's, let's just talk about um, one of the superhero franchises that's super popular is... Um, it's Captain America. And in yeah. the opening movie for Captain America, he is this, I mean, he's, he's not, goody two-shoes is an insult. It, he is a truly upright, upstanding, amazing person who's trapped in a body that is weak and frail and really just, it can't do what he'd love to do. So mm -hmm. he submits himself to experimentation. He's injected with something that instantly, as can only happen on TV, changes him into this Superman who's not only super physically, but still retains the original, just, I mean, morally outstanding um, inner core beliefs that made him such a, you, he was just like someone that you think to yourself, wow, that's an amazing person. As you're watching the movie, you're so sympathetic to him and he just never gives up. And then he becomes the outside of him embodies what was on the inside. That's the first mm -hmm. movie. 
He goes on to save people. He rescues whole, the whole country. He saves his friend. Um, he saves a bunch of his friends and they go out and they work and he's always willing to literally lay his body down on the grenade so that others can survive. And over and over again, he proves his exemplary character when given in the opportunity to shine. He, he takes every chance to make it happen. Then in the second movie, they kind of make fun of him for not liking to curse and things like that. And so they have to bring him down a little bit so he can be more real and relatable. So they have him curse a little bit and they have mm-hmm. him have a few flaws. And then in the third movie, which is not a, a Captain America movie, it's more like an Avengers smash up type of a thing where everyone's in it. They bring him down a little bit more. And so what I see happening and my kids even notice this, they want to make Captain America so much more relatable and real to us that they're kind of every movie they chisel away at some of that morally upright outstanding character that made him so palatable in the first movie such an idol in the first movie and i i almost feel like by the next movie or two he'll be doing stuff that all of us find repugnant and he'll be still uh, drunk captain america something like that why does <laughs> why not. do they do that like you, you why really sound like you know what you're talking about stacy well we watch them all my we we yeah. are marvel heads over here we have the t-shirts we have the movies and we go to the movies and watch the movies and when we see something in the movie that we feel like uh, we I was I was up getting a snack, something like that. We'll go watch it again at the movies. That's who we are. And it sounds like you don't <laughs> just watch the movies. You do what I do with my son, which is talk about them and analyze mm-hmm. them and ask whether or not uh, the characters are are uh, admirable and praiseworthy or how they handle the situations. Are they the kinds of things that uh, we should uh, try to emulate in our own lives? Yeah, but, we do. Um, it, it, those are the best conversations because you know what, Travis? What I find with our kids, because they're teenagers and you can never – talk too much to a teenager they will not talk to you as much as you want to but you you never get to a point with a teenager where you're like oh i'm so tired of talking to you i i find them so fascinating because their perspective is so different from mine but i mean they're, they're obviously they're our children and they're come out of our household and we share a lot of beliefs but they really have a different way of analyzing and receiving information than i do and so with our son knowing all of the I forget what he calls it, but it's the backstory to everything where you read the comic books and then it's either canon or it's not canon. I mean, he yeah, can really get into it. Sure. Yeah, the yes. lore. Yeah. So he'll get he'll say, well, the thing is, mom, if you don't like that, you would have really hated that comic book because the comic book was worse than that. But they cleaned it up for the movie. But obviously they had to leave that in there because that's canon. And I'm like, oh, I hate that. I don't like that. You know, I don't like them making him do that. But in the end, are they going to end up tearing down all of these heroes they've built up for us to kind of look at and say, wow, that's great. Or will they leave them as heroes? Because I feel like we're that's, on a trajectory. That's, that's really a fascinating question. They're only, I think, about halfway through all the movies they plan to do according to their current story arc over the course of 15-something years. And uh, you're right. I mean, I remember when the first Avenger came out, the first Captain America movie, I thought to myself, wow, I can't remember a more mm-hmm. pro-military, pro-American forces film since 9-11. Um, that was just un- unapod- almost unapologetically uh, hurrah, three cheers for America, liberating you know people around the world from mule doers. Um, that was just so. It, it reminded me of watching Yankee Doodle Dandy or something like that. Uh, but you're right; they have been uh, 
putting him through the ringer. And that's something that the character has done in the comic books as well, as I'm sure maybe when your son has told you, that every now and then when America isn't good enough for Captain America, Captain America stops being Captain America until it becomes good enough for him again because he believes he stands up for its ideals, and its ideals exceed any particular government at the time. And so he, he sort of reserves the right to believe that uh, he knows what's better for America than uh, the current government does. Uh, so that's, that's not betraying the character's background in the comic books. It's representing it, and I, I imagine that as the story arc continues, I think we'll see him uh, not just, you know, as you say, uh, hanging out in the down and outer bars. I think we'll see some kind of transformation in him. It is the case, as you might remember, though, the second Captain America movie, the first bit of dialogue is him running around the reflecting pool with his friend the Falcon, and everything he says is on your left, on your left, on your left, establishing the politics of Captain America in the Marvel movies. Um, <laughs> Wait, is that, is that what that was? That been having go through some character changes as well, uh, and, and so it's, it'll be interesting to see where they take them, that's for sure. Okay, so him running around that guy, that and him saying on your left, because Captain America's a leftist? Captain America is, uh, is sort of established in the comic books as usually being something like a center-left New Deal liberal who will, uh, in, in a fashion that regards that as consistent with the Constitution and founding and not, uh, not a progressive transformation of it into something allegedly new and better and different for the future. Sort of a center-left with the libertarian streaks. The Civil War story is originally more libertarian than anything else. Um, but, right, I mean, insofar as, I mean, I don't mean to say he's, he's far left. He's, he's partisan, and part of America is, of course, people get to be, you know, pick their sides, and as long as they regard themselves as part of the overall community and see themselves as sharing more in common with the people they disagree with and not regarding their fellow citizens as enemies, that's perfectly fine for an American, right? The problem I think you see today are the number of people who see their fellow Americans, the people they disagree with, as if they're you know, betraying uh, the ideals or as if their fellow Americans are almost like supervillains to be thwarted in the streets. And that's, that's not something Captain America would ever uh, approve of. Uh, you have those kinds of uh, radicals, Captain America would definitely give them at least a stern talking to. You know what's a funny aside about all of this discussion is that most but, Americans are unaware, because you talked about Captain America being a, you know, kind of a New Deal progressive. Most Americans are unaware of the makeup of our armed forces and that it we have an overrepresentation, statistically speaking, of minorities in America's armed forces. Blacks and Hispanics mm. and women really um, outnumber statistically their counterparts in military service. And it's an amazing thing that America is so inspiring, in spite of all of the talk about our racism and our horrible culture and how everyone here is just a white supremacist and people are in cattle cars getting sent off to some unknown imaginary horror and how awful it is to be a woman and how, you know, all the things that people say about America, our country inspires minorities to join the service. We have an all-volunteer service and to serve there. And so when when I see the... Uh, the Captain America being this, I mean, it was unabashedly pro-military and it just mm -hmm. painted military people as being really heroic. And honestly, they are. I'm, I'm a veteran and I remember meeting people in the service who were just, I, they were just stunningly 
upright people and they were so selfless. And so they were human beings and not everyone in the military was, was perfect. But I just remember that time that I served as being a time where I constantly bumped into excellent people and they weren't being right. paid much and they were wearing the uniform. And some of those people that I would bump into and meet and interact with ended up dying. The, the, you know, they would go to, um, Bosnia and get their legs blown off and not come home. I mean, there were things that happened where I was like, I can't believe that amazing person isn't with us anymore. I just met them. And this is the kind of military service that we have in this country, which is inspiring. And so a movie like Captain America, in my opinion, it shouldn't be a one-off. It should be something that we see routinely coming out of Hollywood, as well as more films that exemplify some of the things you're talking about here in your piece at the Daily Caller, where we, we have... We have amazing people in this country, and that's not an indictment on other countries. It's just a statement of fact about this country. And in this country where we have these amazing people, we often only see one representation of them. And lately, the representation has been that they have to be on the left to, you know, maintain that awesomeness that, that they're really not that awesome unless they're also politically on the left. And I think that's a real disservice for Hollywood because there's an untapped untold number of millions of Americans who want to go to movies and feel the way they felt like that, you know, like we felt when we watched Captain America, we, we want it, mm-hmm. that kind of movie experience again. And I hope they'll read your book and, and your piece here and, and take from it. What it's, it's a untapped market. There's money on the table. They could do more movies like that. They'd still be interesting and they'd be box office hits and they would make a lot of money. No, I think I think that's I think that's right. Not everything has to be gritty and grim and depressing and an apocalypse and a catastrophe, but rather the stories where we see characters that you can sort of regard as metaphorically resembling the kinds of qualities of characters that we would like to have in, at our best and we can see in the people in our own society that we admire the most uh, is more inspirational. And right, I mean, members of the armed forces stand for ideals higher than uh, party politics, and they don't believe that politicians are are superheroes, and that they don't regard the differences that they have between themselves as more important than the causes and the ideals to which they uh, they they unite together in the defense of. And, and, and so uh, I, I, I hope that's in, in line with what you're saying, Stacey. Yeah, and, it is. And I, I want to give you a chance to give us your Twitter handle before we end this segment, because I hear the music. What's your Twitter handle and your website? You'll have to forgive me. I, I don't use Twitter. I, <gasps> I, I kind the of horror! With what you are saying earlier in the show <laughs> and, and yesterday's program as well. It's, uh, it may be more trouble than it's worth, so I, I, well, I tend to avoid it. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm tweeting your article out anyway. Thank you for writing it. And we hope to talk to you again soon, Travis. Travis Smith, Associate Professor of Political Science at Concordia University. I'm Stacey Washington. We'll be right back.